Hello, and welcome back to Franklin Covey's twice weekly podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. That's me, your host. I'm privileged to serve twice a week now as the interviewer with profound interviews from thought leaders across all industries that share a common passion with Franklin Covey, and that is making you a better leader. Whether it is a leader at your executive level, perhaps on a board of directors, maybe you are the leader of a mid-sized company or uh, midway through your, your career trajectory, perhaps you're an entrepreneur or a solopreneur or an intrapreneur, or maybe you're just simply but very vitally leading your family, you have something in common with us. And that is you recognize that every company is now a technology company and every business is in the same business, they're in the people business. And we believe that what leaders bring as their ultimate competitive advantage to their organization is not primarily their education or their technical skills. It's their ability to develop mutually beneficial relationships. That all of us as leaders and even individual contributors, our key contributive, our key contribution to our organization, to our vendors, our supply chain, to our customers and our colleagues is our ability to foster great relationships. When I'm out keynoting, I talk to our clients that that really is the key competency you bring to your company. Known often as soft skills, now we've framed power skills. We have the Harvard Medical School psychologist and researcher, Dr. Bob Waldinger, joining us today, who is the lead author of the recent bestseller book simply titled, The Good Life. This book's tagline is Lessons from the World's Largest Scientific Study of Happiness. Dr. Waldinger, welcome to On Leadership. Thanks. It's great to be here. We have, as an organizational development firm focused on leadership, building high-trust cultures, productivity, we've been obsessed with your work for many decades. We've followed you as a psychiatrist, as a researcher. In fact, one of our books referenced the nature of this longitudinal study. You have a clinical practice as a psychiatrist, but this book has had a seismic impact on the way I think people reframe their values, their mission, their purpose, even post-pandemic. Bob, would you rewind a little bit and talk about this largest of its kind study that led to you being the lead author of this new book called The Good Life? Sure. So as far as we know, it's the longest study of the same people going through their entire adult lives that's ever been done. It's in its 85th year. We started in 1938 with two groups. One, a group of pretty privileged Harvard College undergraduates. The other, a group of very underprivileged boys from Boston's poorest neighborhoods, most troubled homes. And both studies, both groups were studied to see what helps them thrive as they go through their lives. And then we brought in all their spouses, we brought in their children, more than half of whom are women. So now we have gender balance. But the basic question is, what predicts who's going to do well in life and who's not? In fact, Bob, I think there was an interesting insight that talked about at age 50, it's kind of a, an important pivot point that helps to determine what your life will be like, your health, your mental health, your physical health. Talk about what you learned between at around age 50 and the rest of someone's life. Well, we had followed people all the way to age 80 and we said, okay, when we look back at what we knew about them at age 50, could we predict who's going to be a happy, healthy octogenarian, and who isn't? 
And yes, we found that, you know, cholesterol levels and blood pressure mattered, taking care of your health mattered. But the strongest predictor of who is going to stay happy and healthy between age 50 and age 80 was the quality of their relationships, that the people who were more connected to other people and more warmly connected to other people stayed healthier and lived longer. Bob, maybe a good place to start is to begin with the concept of loneliness. I'm guessing even for social extroverts, they can still feel some level of loneliness. You write in the book that you can be lonely in a marriage. You can be lonely in a crowd. You can be lonely at work. What would you like leaders to know, leaders who believe that relationships are their key competitive advantage in their team, what would you like to remind people about how frequent loneliness is in people's lives? Well, now when they ask people, one in three Americans will tell you they're lonely much or all of the time. And when they did a survey of millions of workers at all levels in organizations, half of CEOs said that they're lonely. So this happens all over the world to all kinds of workers and at all levels of every organization. Bob, is there a correlation between loneliness and introversion? Or is loneliness just as prevalent with someone who might be a social butterfly or a social extrovert? Loneliness is prevalent no matter whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. Introverts just need a lot of alone time to refuel, but they still need people and like people. They just don't like big cocktail parties, for example, whereas extroverts get their energy from people. But extroverts can be really lonely, and introverts can be quite content with just one or two good close relationships. Bob, as I read your book, if I'm not mistaken, and I may get this wrong, so please feel free to correct me, but we talked really about, a lot about Western culture, specifically American culture, how much of our language is focused around economics and economic terms. Will you talk about, to the degree that's healthy or unhealthy in our relationships, maybe how fixated Western culture is, including words we use on a daily basis that are verbs rooted in economic terms? Well, we talk about spending time. We talk about investing in relationships. And those monetary metaphors are okay. But really what we find is that the most important thing about relationships is not their transactional value. It's not what you can do for me in terms of helping me find my next job. It's really more about the emotional connection we have with each other. And it's that emotional bond that often makes us not only feel happier and be healthier, but it also makes us better workers. It makes us less likely to leave our job. If we have somebody we want to show up for, a friend at work, we are better at producing what we need to produce in the workplace. We're much less likely to leave for another opportunity. Bob, in the course of five years in this podcast, almost six years now and 300 episodes, I've learned to become very vulnerable. So here it goes. Um, I would consider myself generally to be an introvert masquerading as an extrovert. <laughs> Different appointment on that, because that's yeah. my definition of people that are successful. They usually tend to be great networkers and extroverted. We can have a separate therapy appointment about that. But I also would say 
I tend to have a lot of superficial relationships, very surface level relationships. I've never had a best like soulmate friend. I'm married very happily to my wife, but I've never had a best friend in my life. I've never had like a guys group where we go out and hunt or fish or canoe or whatever, and we get together. But I have dozens, if not hundreds, of people that I talk to on a weekly basis. And they're, you might call them transactional. I don't know if that speaks to my my depth of character or lack of character. Is there any correlation between people like me that have large social networks that are very maybe thin in terms of depth versus people that have fewer friends but very deep, intimate relationships? What would you say about any correlation there and happiness in life? That's a great question. So what we know from research is that almost everybody needs at least one person with whom they feel deeply attached. So for you, it might be your wife. And that might be all you need. The other thing we know is that these more superficial relationships or or better casual relationships, that those relationships also matter, that they do different things for us. They give us little hits of well-being when we say hello to the person who gets us our coffee in the coffee shop in the morning. Um, they make us feel like we belong when we say hi to the person in the neighborhood who we don't know well, but we're friendly toward, that all of those things matter in terms of our well-being. So it's really both. It's casual connections, maybe many of them, but at least one or two really good, warm, confiding relationships. Well, you speak to the concept of social fitness, What does that mean and how should people consider employing it in their daily lives? We we coined that term, social fitness, basically because it struck us that there's a really good analogy with our physical fitness. So physical fitness is something we work in. Day, Day in and day out, we work at it, right? You go to the gym, you work out, you don't come home and say, gee, I'm done. I never have to do that again. We know that we need to keep at it. What we found was that the people who were the best at their relationships all the way through their lives were the people who kept at it, who would make small gestures over and over again. They'd be the person who reached out to a friend to go for coffee, go for a walk, play basketball, whatever it might be. And what we found was that the people who were better at maintaining their connections by taking small actions were the people who were the happiest and the healthiest. Bob, I speak as an author myself about 60 to 75 times a year around the nation. And I typically will talk about how important it is as a leader to become better at developing relationships, right? People we know don't quit bad jobs, they quit bosses and cultures. We know that people wanna be connected in their workplace. Because for many of us, we spend more time with our colleagues than we even do awake with our families, especially in America and the Western culture. Uh, And I often will say to audiences and leaders, you need to become more expert, not at a pivot table in Excel, not at understanding the integration of your processes only or systems or strategies, but you need to become better expert at developing relationships because this is how you broaden someone's longevity, how you keep them from being poached, how you help grow them in the organization and pollinate them. Are there any particular skills that you've researched or uncovered that anybody can get better at when it comes to developing relationships? Absolutely. 
So we all want to feel seen and we all want to feel like we matter. And if you can get better at making someone else feel that you really see them and that they matter, you have gone a huge distance toward earning that person's trust and loyalty. So how do you make someone feel seen? Get curious. Find out more about them. Find out more about their idea. You know, we often pretty quickly assume when we know someone for a long time, oh, I know what that person's thinking. Or when they start to say something, we stop listening because we know what they're going to say. What if you could really get to a place where you're radically curious about your coworkers, about your employees, uh, about your boss? Tell me more about that. Oh, so what makes you say that? Or how did you get to that point of view to be really interested? We love to talk about ourselves, right? And so if you can be curious and bring that curiosity to each person you meet, they will respond. Most people just blossom when you're truly interested in them. And then similarly, that making somebody feel like they matter. So it doesn't mean you have to agree with them. It just means that you want to value what they say. So we've all had the experience of making a comment in a meeting and everyone moving on as though we hadn't spoken, right? So what if you make sure that you acknowledge someone's contribution, even riff on it a little bit or be curious about it to make sure that that person knows that you value the fact that they made the effort to speak up, to offer something. So all of that, sort of making someone feel they matter, being curious, are two of the fundamental pillars of building better relationships. Let's talk a bit about what I might term relationship hygiene. Uh, if I'm not great at developing deep relationships, I am great at staying in touch. I think one of my skill sets, Bob, is to constantly be thinking about people and reaching out. It might be an email, might be a text, might be a phone call, just checking in. I, I keep my relationships warm. I don't think because I'm a sociopath or a user and I want to you know, have them there at the ready, I just I like to stay in touch. I'm actually pretty good at keeping people in touch several times a year. I have a lot of friends that don't do that at all, right? They, they won't call you for three or four years, but when you call them, it's as if you talked yesterday. Have you learned anything in the research around the maintenance of relationships and why or if that's important to happiness in life? Well, you're pointing to two scenarios and each of them works some of the time with some people. So what you're saying is you're good at staying in touch. And so you don't go three or four years and wait to see if you still reconnect well when you talk. But we've all had that experience of not having talked to somebody for years and then it's just like no time has passed. But what I would say is that if you really want to keep up a relationship, if you value it, don't leave it to chance. Because some people find that when they don't bother to reach out, they don't bother to stay in touch, that perfectly good relationships just kind of wither away from neglect. We can't always predict who's going to fall into that category. So I would say, if you really value somebody and want to keep them in your life, make those efforts. They can be small efforts, but make them 
over and over again. Bob, you wrote a whole section about the balance between giving and receiving uh, and the value that oftentimes giving help provides your own mental health, even physical health. Uh, riff on that for a bit. Yeah. Well, actually, you know, the world, the UN does a world happiness report every year where they go around and ask people, what do you need in order to have a happy life? And one of the things that people say all over the world, all ages, all demographics, is that to have a happy life, they need to be able to give to other people. They need opportunities to be generous. And that's not just about money. That's about effort and attention and expertise that they want to be able to give to others. So giving to others makes us actually feel good. So actually what that means is that when we ask someone else for help, often that's giving them an opportunity to be generous. So rather than imposing on someone, much of the time when we ask somebody for help, we're offering them something. We're offering them an opportunity. Bob, here's a multi-part scenario. You can address any of it you'd like. Um, as we can come into, you know, 300 plus interviews for this podcast, we speak with psychiatrists and psychologists and experts of every measure and background. And I see a common theme amongst many people that have a background like yours, and that is setting boundaries. And what does that mean to set boundaries in your life? And also recognizing that not all relationships, friendships are meant to stay. Sometimes they're meant to end and you've got to excise. Will you talk as a psychiatrist, as an author, will you talk about how people keep relationships in their life and they set boundaries and they sometimes have to say this relationship is done. It has served its purpose or it's no longer serving its purpose. Any advice you would give as a, as a, a medical doctor around how to set healthy boundaries and even end friendships in your life? Yes. I mean, there's, there's that old saying, um, good fences make good neighbors. And it's kind of the same with relationships that um, it's really important to be clear about what a relationship involves and what we do with each other and what we don't do with each other. I mean, think about all the inappropriate behaviors that we think that we see at work, particularly around gender, sexuality, that kind of thing. And so the ability to set good boundaries to say, okay, we don't go there. That's not what we do in this relationship is really important. It's important for employers, for employees. Um, so we know that. And often learning to set those boundaries gently with humor so that we don't shame each other. We just say, no, let's not go there or I'm not comfortable doing that. That's really important. That's going to maintain a relationship rather than destroy it. Um, and then the second part, you had said, Scott, what was, what was the well, second part? I talked about sometimes you need to end relationships. Not yeah. all, you know, you don't have to be a friend with someone for 50 years. And they come and go. Absolutely. So what we talk about is, you know, no relationship of any importance is going to be without conflict or differences, right? Like we do disagree at times. And so... When we talk about having good relationships, we're not talking about a relationship where there's never any disagreement or any conflict. And so many of us have relationships that we work on, right? You know, I've been married to my wife for 37 years. Um, we disagree at times. 
we have to find ways to work out disagreements or we'll never survive as a couple. We've gotten pretty good at that. Um, think about disagreements with a boss or a coworker. That what we want is to work on relationships, to find ways to get better at disagreeing and coming out the other end so that everybody feels okay. But sometimes relationships are just impossible. It just doesn't work. And then we get to a point where we step away. Many people have had a relationship with a boss or an employee where they say, this just isn't working. We've tried. We can't make it better. We're going to step away. And that has to be necessary. The other thing is, of course, we grow and change. And, and many times we grow in different directions. That's not a problem. So, you know, how many of us have all the same friends we had when we were 10 years old? Like almost nobody, right? Because we grow and we change and we, we go off in different directions. That's normal. It's not a problem to essentially have relationships um, drift apart. Uh, that's not a problem at all. The really important thing is to hold on to those relationships that you feel are of such value that you don't want to let them go, even as the two of you grow and change through your lives. Bob, what advice might you give to anyone, but specifically maybe someone who's suffered loss, betrayal, a violation of trust post-pandemic related to or not related to the pandemic, and they've, they've retreated, that they've become maybe, um, I don't want to use the word hermit, but they've really been, for whatever reason, burned, or, or for that matter, may just not have the social skills or lack the confidence to develop relationships. Would you speak to those people that might be right now listening, what the doctor is saying makes sense. And I take this at face value, but it's hard for me. It's hard with my confidence and my competence and with my skill set, my geography, my self-esteem to develop relationships. Any advice you would give people that are isolated, that psychologically what you're saying makes sense, but practically it's really hard? Sure. And it's hard for lots of people. So if you're one of those people that Scott's describing, you're not alone. Lots of people are in that situation. So I think the first step is to try to take small risks. So it's always a risk to speak to someone new. Um, you know, to, to speak to a coworker who you don't really know very well, or maybe you haven't met at all but you run into them at the coffee machine. Um, it's a risk to speak to someone you meet at a church service or uh, someone you happen to be sitting next to at a soccer game, okay, any of that. What I would say is let yourself take small risks when you're feeling up to it. Know that it's not gonna go well every time. Think of it more like you know being up at bat in baseball, like if you hit the ball one out of three times, you are doing fantastic. If you make a little overture to somebody, uh, making just making a comment to them, and they reply one out of three times, you're doing great. So prepare yourself that not every time you take a risk, it's going to succeed, but that some of the times it's going to succeed. And so if you go in with that mindset, 
you might be less likely to feel bad if it's difficult and if it's a little scary at times to take a risk socially. But keep taking the risks because what we know is that when you do that, eventually it pays off. Bob, we all have people in our lives that make it look effortless, right? Whether they're you know, working a cocktail party or they're entering the company town hall and they have a lot of confidence and they're, they're, they're shaking hands and networking, whether they're at a restaurant and they've got a lot of friends around them. You know, they may be a gadfly, they may be expert at it. Is there anything in your research have you found that there are, there are behaviors or mindsets or a level of courage or fearlessness that people that develop healthy relationships do that others could also adopt. I kind of asked that earlier, but I know people in my life that I think, wow, they're so good at that. They make it look effortlessly. I wish I had their skill, but I don't. Or is it, or is it just they have a level of bravado or lack of self-awareness that they're just as, um, they, they don't think they're as good at, is it, at it that I, as I do, as I think I'm good at it. Uh, take that wherever you want to go. Well, you're a good example. So you just told us, you're kind of an introvert, but you're masquerading as an extrovert. You're learning to be an extrovert, right? So probably inside, it's not effortless for you. No. Um, and I bet at times it's a little nerve-wracking to, to, to do these things, to put yourself out there in the way you do, right? And one of the things that's easy to do is look at other people and say, gosh, it's effortless for them. It's easy for other people, but not for me. I'm the only one who has a difficult time at this. One of my teachers used a phrase I love. He said, we're always comparing our insides to other people's outsides. If I compare myself to you, I'd say, ah, you're an extrovert. It's effortless. You don't have to you don't have to worry at all about connecting with other people. But you've told us that's actually not true. And I think if we can hold in mind that nobody is comfortable all the time socially, that can go a long way to helping us feel less alone when we're feeling awkward or unsure of ourselves. Beautifully said. Don't compare your insides to someone else's outsides. Uh, I've also heard a similar phrase, don't compare your starting point somebody else's midpoint or endpoint, right? Yeah, uh, Bob, what were some of the absolutely. insights? What's, what are some of the surprising insights that you've teased out of this longest ever study on happiness that surprised even you as an as a, a MD and a psychiatrist and a social researcher? Hmm. Um, one insight was that privilege doesn't make you happy. That privilege is certainly... Um, you know, convenient and, and a good thing, and we should try to raise everybody's level, but that our inner city men who started out so disadvantaged, they were not less happy on average than the Harvard undergraduate men, right? And so what we know is that the things we think of as making you happy, wealth, fame, really high achievement, those don't make you happier. Um, that they're fine, but uh, there are some very happy, wealthy people and some very unhappy, wealthy people, um, similarly with fame and achievement. And I think that's really important to name because the culture 
can keep sending us these messages. Oh, if I, if I just get rich, if I just get really famous, if I just win all these awards at work, then I'll be happy. That's not true. Bob, your book has become a bestseller and is the conversation in thousands of companies and families around the world. Uh, tell us what's next for you. Well, uh, we're still collecting data, uh, even as we speak, on our second generation participants, all the children who are baby boomers. Um, and I'm working on combining my Zen life, my Zen meditation practice and teaching with lifespan research and trying to perhaps write about where they overlap. Because sitting down and studying my own heart and mind on a meditation cushion is one way of studying the experience of being human. And my research is another way of studying the experience of being human. It's the same human life. And they overlap in lots of ways that I think might be helpful to people. You left a little breadcrumb trail there. Uh, you are a Zen master and you teach yeah. meditation around the world, something that I am told frequently by my wife and friends I might benefit from. Uh, <laughs> give us a crash course. Only I would ask for a crash course in Zen mastery and meditation. Uh, for those people like me that are married and have three children and have you know multiple careers and writing and podcasting and you're busy and I'm today driving kids to basketball and tennis and you know church classes and there's not a lot of time for meditation, let alone understanding the practice. Uh, what's something that super busy, in-demand people can do to bring a meditative benefit to their life? Where do you start? Great question. Not everybody should meditate. That's not right for everybody. But what we know really reinvigorates us is finding some way to be present, to come into the present moment. Now, that doesn't have to be sitting on a meditation cushion. That could be um, doing a hobby. It could be gardening. It could be taking a hike in the woods. Anything that takes you out of the usual swirl of thoughts, thinking about the past, thinking about the future, and just brings you into the present, just focusing on this moment of hiking up a trail or this moment of hitting a tennis ball, right, or a golf ball, just something that brings you into the present where you lose time, you lose awareness of everything except just what you're doing in this moment. And we can do that even if we are super busy. Dr. Bob Waldinger, professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, Zen master and co-author of the new best-selling book, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness, Thanks for joining us today. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate your time and investment in our listeners and viewers around the world. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. Mm -hmm.